Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. Early last month, there was an extraordinary announcement. Saudi Arabia and Iran had agreed to resume diplomatic relations after seven years of more or less open hostility. Even more extraordinary was the person standing between the Iranian and Saudi foreign ministers, Wang Yi, China's most senior foreign policy official. Oh, and they were meeting in Beijing. His statement that day said it all, quote, this is a victory for dialogue, a victory for peace, major positive news for a world which is currently so turbulent and restive, and it sends a clear signal, unquote. Arguably, it sent several clear signals. Most obviously, China, not the United States, was the peacemaker. But also that Israel was not mentioned, despite Iran's deep hostility and Saudi Arabia's quiet rapprochement with the Israelis, and that Saudi Arabia is self-confident enough today to make such a momentous decision without the cover of the Gulf Cooperation Council, or as it would have been the case in the old days, the Arab League. What does it all mean? A new Middle Eastern order, the end of the Sunni-Shia conflict, another evidence of China's rise and America's decline. The conceit of this podcast is new thinking for a new world, which certainly describes what was announced in Beijing. Today's guest will help us understand some of that new thinking. Yasmin Farouk is a non-resident scholar in the Middle East program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, who works on Saudi foreign policy, among other issues in the Gulf. Welcome, Yasmin. Thank you for having me. Everyone knew that the Saudis and Iranians had been talking for almost two years, but the denouement, especially one based in Beijing, shocked most of us. Were you surprised? Um, I I knew from my own uh, research and interviews that there were talks in, uh, mediated by China uh, based on a Chinese initiative, but I was surprised when it was announced. Yes. Let's separate the two big pieces. China's role in the interests of the two most important Gulf states, Saudi Arabia and Iran. You've written that this agreement is a case study of China and Saudi Arabia's shared understanding of what a rules-based international order is and what international security ought to be. Can you explain what you mean by that? So Saudi Arabia and China share a pretty conservative interpretation of international law when it comes to sovereignty and non-intervention in domestic affairs. And these clearly, I mean, namely those two principles were actually included in the joint statement that was issued, that um, countries should uh, coexist, compete, but with clear frameworks that above all, they should not meddle in each other's or other countries' domestic affairs uh, in ways that would lead to open conflict. So another aspect that is linked to this is that state-to-state relations shouldn't be conditioned by their domestic politics, meaning that China's mediation between Saudi Arabia and Iran or Saudi-Iran relations have nothing to do with 
human rights inside Saudi Arabia, inside China, or inside Iran. That's also an approach to international relations and to rules-based order that we have seen here. The third aspect, in addition to that, that I would highlight is that um, this is also a case study in South-South cooperation and relations. That, you know, um, the, the peaceful resolution of disputes don't always have to doesn't always have to go through the north or through uh the p5 or through the superpowers uh the traditional superpowers of the system developing countries quote-unquote because china likes to use this jargon developing countries can also help each other without the need to go through the security council where you have mostly western powers dominating absolutely fascinating That suggests we really are at an inflection point in how Middle East politics work. You are saying that the key players, at least Saudi Arabia and Iran, are starting to think differently about how to find peace and prosperity in the region. Yes. So if you look, for example, of um, when you dig deeper into why it happened now, why have the Iranians finally accept, accepted the compromise with Saudi Arabia? The main reason is that the Saudis this time uh, invested in Iran's uh, domestic protests and domestic instability. Uh, The Saudi government never officially or publicly recognized that uh, they have supported or that they support Iran International, which is a a TV channel uh, that has been covering the protests in Iran from uh, London. It's a group of dissidents based in London and uh, had a real impact during the process that erupted in Iran uh, since November 2022 in terms of mobilizing people, in terms of getting, you know, giving um, international uh, coverage, if you want, of the protests, but also informing the Iranians inside Iran when the Iranian government was trying to actually cut any kind of coverage of protests across the country. The Saudis again, never publicly admitted that they invested in this news channel, but also in the coverage of the process of the protests on their own channels, like Al Arabiya, for example, which is a Saudi, very prominent Saudi news channel on Twitter, for example. But when you dig deeper and do interviews, this is something that really hurt the Iranian regime. This is what got the Iranian regime to say, okay, this is getting serious. We need to find a compromise with these guys. If you look on the Saudi side of things, uh, the, the current leadership, very particularly the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, has personally invested in, in, in Vision 2030. I'm not saying personally invested his own money, because in Saudi Arabia there is no difference between state and personal money, but um, his own legacy has become the success of Vision 2030, which is a vision for socioeconomic development in Saudi Arabia. He has mobilized, you know, all resources in the country, all of them, and by that I mean tens and hundreds of billions of dollars to transform his country. Every time Iran hit or attacked Saudi Arabia, whether through uh, you know the waters of the Gulf or from Iraq or from Yemen, that was a setback that costed Saudi Arabia so much that threatened the achievements of Vision 2030, hence threatening his own legacy, right? because he is called the godfather of vision 2030. He's the one who, when he came to power, said that, you know, we're going to take this fight 
from uh, inside Saudi Arabia, meaning the attacks happening inside Saudi Arabia by Iran, to inside Iran. And frankly speaking, he did. So both of them needed the stability, you know, of the regime and of the country. The difference this time is that it has always been Iran that had the cards to destabilize the national security and the political stability of the Saudi regime. This time, for the first time in a very long while, the Saudis also had the card. What did China do differently than other interlocutors have tried to do to get this deal done? Do you envision a continuing role for China as this relationship between Iran and Saudi evolves? So um, in one of the leaks to the press by a Saudi official, and I double check, um, I, I mean, uh, th- that Saudi official said that China's role itself was subject to negotiation. China's role in this deal is the main element that made the Saudis consider going that publicly, that enthusiastically uh, um, uh, into a new deal, a new attempt to coexist with Iran. Uh, the Saudis are betting a lot, and we can discuss whether this good, whether this is good or bad for them, uh, and we can discuss their perception. But they are betting a lot on China's role here. Uh, There is this perception on the Saudi side that China is uniquely placed to have uh, a unique leverage over the Iranians, being their number one trade partner, being their number one military partner, uh, their economic partner in general. They have the tools to put pressure on Iran and to make the Iranians think twice before breaching any kind of agreement where China is involved. Then, for example... Uh, other international powers such as the U.S. and Europe. And the Saudis, again, to their credit, they have always asked their traditional partners in the West, whether Western Europe or the United States, to play the role that China played. There is, um, you know, a realization in Saudi Arabia, in Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia, that there is an imbalance of power with Iran and that the Saudis, to go into a deal with Iran, they need support. They need a power to compensate for their weakness vis-a-vis Iran, for their military weakness vis-a-vis Iran, and for their strategic weakness vis-a-vis Iran. The United States and Western Europe never wanted to play that role. They first wanted to get the nuclear file out of the way, and then they presented promises, engagements to the Saudis and other GCC countries that once we agree with Iran on the nuclear file, we will get to our own bilateral or regional problems with Iran. But then it never happened. Uh, Then enters the Chinese. You know, the Chinese president, when he was visiting uh, Saudi Arabia last summer, he took that initiative initiative telling the Saudis, uh, we are going to invest our prestige, our political, our economic weight with Iran to solve your problems. Not just our problems, meaning the nuclear file, because also China cares about nuclear proliferation, but it's like taking the process the other way around. Uh, Instead of starting with the nuclear and then getting to the regional, he offered to the Saudis, okay, let's work with you on a parallel path, which is something that the Saudis have always wanted. Also, China itself has at least um, 
two initiatives that are relevant to what it did here. So this is also can be situated in a larger Chinese foreign policy. It has a security initiative related to the Gulf region, promoting security and stability in the Gulf region. And it has a global security initiative that this uh, agreement easily fits in. But again, because of that China has, has learned a bit about, you know, the rationale, let's say, in that part of the world, it did not offer to uh, put this within a global security framework, but it has promoted, you know, some kind of regional ownership by, by saying, okay, what do you, let's make this about Saudi Arabia and Iran and not about global security, not about China, not about, uh, you know, Gulf security in general. And this is how it got a buy-in from both parties. The day before the Saudi-Iran announcement on March 10th, Saudi Arabia asked the United States for a series of things, new guarantees, uh, security guarantees, non-NATO ally status for Riyadh, uh, future supply of weapons, U.S. assistance for Saudi civilian nuclear power. And all of that was supposedly a package that would encourage according to some reports, the Saudis to engage with the Israelis. So the road to Jerusalem was through Washington, at least as officially postured at the start of March. And then, of course, the next day is the announcement of this, this new relationship. That sounds like it was a very deliberate positioning to say that here's the old file U.S. relationship. If you want to continue with us, you're going to have to do some of these things because you don't know this yet. But tomorrow, we're about to head off in a different direction with not a new partner, but with your major, if not enemy, at least competitor. So the Saudis seem to be playing a very high stakes game here, playing it fairly well, at least at the moment. Would you agree? There is uh, a gap of perception to what a strategic partnership means between Riyadh and I would say Washington, but even, you know, Western Europe. Um, in Saudi Arabia's perception, diversifying their international relations um, is not a zero-sum game. Uh, having closer relationships with China and Russia doesn't mean that uh, they are having a less close relationship with Washington, D.C. You can say in a way that they think or believe that they can have both. Uh, now there is pressure from the United States to say that at least when it comes to security and defense, no, you cannot have both. Uh, but Riyadh is resisting this. Um, you know, you have another country right next to Saudi Arabia, which is the United Arab Emirates, that is so far has been successful in having both, having some kind of coexistence and, you know, trade relations that are significant with Iran while developing closer relationship with Israel. So it is feasible, I mean, but Saudi Arabia doesn't have the, ag the agility of the United Arab Emirates. They might look at the UAE right now and say, we can do it because a proof a smaller country can, but I don't think they can. And I think that throughout the process of the talks on normalizing with Israel, uh, the, 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 there has been a maturity in Saudi Arabia in realizing that this is a very significant leverage on Washington 
uh, and on the United States. And if we're going to jeopardize uh, both domestic stability, but also international influence by normalizing the relationship with the Israel, uh, then we should get something big from the United States because basically what you can get from Israel, you can also get it from somewhere else. But there are things in defense and security that you can only get from the United States. And these are the kinds of things that we want if we're going to take such a step with Israel. Uh, so, and also, if you sit in Saudi Arabia, it is easier to normalize the relationship with Iran than to normalize the relationship with Israel. Because the relationship with Iran, even after 1979, existed before. I mean, until 2016, uh, they had embassies and consulates and they had economic and trade relations. And some trade relations and uh, some private investments even continued after 2016 when diplomatic relations were cut. But these kinds of open public relations, especially the people-to-people -people relations, never existed with Israel. That that that's a, that's a, that would be a huge transformation. Restoring the relationship with Iran is not that huge of a transformation, and this is why, you know, when they were presented with the two options, we have the Iranian option, and we have the Israeli option. Well, the Iranian option comes with a guarantee from a superpower. Uh, that is here now offering it to us. The normalization with Israel is, uh, first of all, we don't know how much the buy-in of the superpower, its role, its investment, and here we're talking about the United States. Second of all, uh, again, when the United Arab Emirates normalized with Israel, there was supposed to be some kind of F-35 deal of getting, you know, the most advanced American aircrafts in addition to uh, you know, the the strategic and defense cooperation with Israel itself when the UAE never got <laughs> the aircrafts. And Saudi Arabia is, a, is an, in an even tougher position in Washington, D.C. when it comes to acquiring new arms and acquiring new weapons than the UAE was. So everything about the normalization with, the, with Israel was complicated, vague, not guaranteed, Normalizing the relationship with Iran, you had a very pragmatic, practical superpower invested in it saying, what do you want? Okay, here is what I can give. Here is what you can take and so on and so forth. So it was not really either, either or as presented in, in the press. I think Riyadh thinks it can do both, but maybe it's a question of phases. A world under stress needs leaders in every discipline and in every country. Leaders whose work is innovative, courageous, rooted in universal values and global in approach or implication. If you know someone like that, in your company, in your university, in your community, anywhere, please nominate that person for the Talberg SNF Aliasin Global Leadership Prize. Go to talbergprize.org. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G prize.org. I love the fact that you described the relationship, um, the Saudi approach to foreign policy these days as detached pragmatism, uh, which is not characteristic of any of the players in the Middle East uh, historically. But let's talk both first about the United States and about Israel, because clearly the relationship between Saudi and Washington has been complicated through the Obama years, the Trump years went up and down, and, and, and the Biden years have been tricky, to put it mildly. 
so it's understandable that the Saudis would begin to wonder about alternatives and indeed have started an alternative. But you just suggested that that change in the Saudi-China relationship necessarily will have implications for the U.S.-Saudi relationship. How do you think it works out? On the long run, if this deal really sticks and if it really works, it, it solves the number one priority on Saudi Arabia's national security priorities. It solves uh, Yemen, which, which is in the process of being solved by having Iran stopping its weapons supply to the rebels in Yemen that have been attacking uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, it, it takes away uh, um, Iran's um, instigation of attacks by militias in Iraq against uh, Saudi Arabia. It may lead to some kind of coexistence, if you want, and competition in Syria and Lebanon. On the long run, this agreement has holds great potential for Saudi security, but also influence in the region. But this means also that Saudi Arabia is going to become entitled and will owe so much to China. So even if on the short run, they believe that they can balance the relationship between China and the United States, what happens on the day when China is going to tell Saudi Arabia, well, I solved your number one security problem and here is what I want in return now. And the return would be, for example, some kind of Chinese military presence in the region, which is, I'm not saying that China wants this, but, you know, um, let's think about how the competition between the U.S. and China could evolve on the wrong run, or wanting Saudi Arabia to side with China on other issues at the U.N. They are already coordinating a lot, by the way, uh, at the U.N., um, but you can never guarantee what kind of price tag China is going to put on the role it played for Saudi Arabia especially that you have a United States that, again, more and more thinking about the competition with China as a, as a zero-sum game, telling you know countries you are either with us or with China. So I think on the short run, it is still manageable, uh, but on the long run, it might become complicated um, if China makes certain demands to Saudi Arabia that the United States are not accepting. It's the Middle East. Of course, it's going to be complicated. Uh, let's talk about the 800-pound elephant in the room, which is, of course, Israel. Israel has drawn a very bright red line around nu Iran's nuclear ambitions. It was only a few weeks ago that there were rumors all over the place that the Iranians might attack Israel and vice versa. Uh, and all of a sudden, that's gone. But of course, it's not gone. One of the remarkable things about the announcement, and even all of the, the leaks in the last month, is that there's been very little discussion uh, from either Iran or Saudi, or for that matter, China, about Israel. It's as though they just agreed to say, we're not going to talk about it for a while, and we'll see what happens. But it does raise the question of what's going to happen, because we've seen in, in recent days uh, Hezbollah beginning to respond to some of the turmoil in the West Bank. Hezbollah, of course, is gets its supplies and, and a lot of its support from Iran. That story looks like it could restart itself again. And there, there's a lot of issues around that. 
But how do these two countries, Saudi and Iran, Tehran and Riyadh, who clearly want peace, how do they manage the Israeli file? Well, to Saudi Arabia, Israel is a, a double-edged sword. Um, it is a significant uh, bargaining card that it has with Iran. Because again, as I said, Israel um, could play the role of the United States when it comes to um, rebalancing the balance of power between Saudi Arabia and Iran in Saudi Arabia's favor. Um, and also Israel has defense systems that Saudi Arabia could very much use to defend itself against attacks by militias, whether from, again, from Iraq or from uh, Yemen, or even from the Gulf waters or the other sides, the, the, the Red Sea waters, which has never happened uh, for the oh, not not never, but is not frequent as much as uh, from the other side uh, with Iran on the other side, of course, which is the Gulf side. Um, Israel has those systems because simply this is these are exactly the kinds of threats and attacks that Israel gets. So it has developed very efficient systems to deal with them. So Saudi Arabia can make a lot of use from Israeli defense systems, defense technology, but also AI, desalination technology, you name it, right? So, and to top all that, this is a credible threat to Iran. It's not like saying we are uh, allying with Egypt, which is a military that Israel knows very well and knows how to deal with very well and knows that Egypt is restrained very much when it comes to military action in the region. So that's a credible threat, a credible card that Saudi Arabia can use to pressure Iran. On the other side, um, Saudi and Israeli perceptions on the end goal vis-a-vis -vis Iran in the region um, is not the same. Uh, Israel feels that the mere existence of the Islamic Republic in Iran is an existential threat to it and would like to see it gone. The Saudis have come to the realization that, no, we want to coexist with it because we cannot just, it will not go away. It is there <laughs> and it's not disappearing. And we want to find some way to coexist together. Second is that the Israelis have the will and the power to strike Iran. Uh, and they know that the rest of the world would come to their rescue if Iran ever decides to respond, which is very real. It almost never happened, even when Israel is striking uh, targets in, Iranian targets inside Syria, right? Um, Saudi Arabia doesn't have that luxury. Saudi Arabia can't guarantee and actually lived the situation where it was attacked by Iran uh, in 2019. And to Saudi Arabia's perception, Europeans, Western Europeans and the United States didn't come to its rescue. The, Saudi Arabia would become its platform for any kind of military confrontation between Iran and Israel because Israel would hit Iran, but Iran would respond in Saudi Arabia. And they don't want to be in that situation. And so this deal could also be perceived as a Saudi way to shield itself, to find a safe space in case there is a military escalation between Iran and Israel or Iran and the United States. A way to say, 
we're not part of this, we don't want to be part of this, and we won't be part of this. Which is, by the way, part of the arrangement between the United Arab Emirates and Iran. The United Arab Emirates normalized the relationship with Israel, but I think there was clear statements saying they would never be part and they would never allow for their territories, airspace, or waters to be used to attack Iran. And I believe, I mean, the, the terms of the agreements in Beijing has, have not been made public, but I, am, I can tell you that I am sure that Israel was there. The issue on whether Saudi Arabia would support any kind of military escalation with Iran or would assist or help in any kind of military escalation with Iran, especially if this escalation came from the United States. So uh, Israel here, as I said at the beginning, just to wrap up, is a double-edged sword for uh, Saudi Arabia. So one interpretation has been that the Saudis traded a dominant relationship with Israel for a relationship with Iran. What you've just argued, I think, is that the Saudis believe they can manage both relationships in some kind of, both of which will evolve over time in ways that can only be guessed at and are not known today, but that they have the skill set to manage both because there's different interests and relationships in both relationships. Is that a fair summary of where you are in, in terms of thinking about the future? Yes, I think so. But I do believe also that they think that they have learned that uh, time, the timing matters, when it happens, what sequence. Well, it's quite clear that the Israelis may or may not have been surprised. There's been all sorts of leaks out of Netanyahu's office. Oh, I knew about this all along. Except if you look at the Israeli press, it certainly seems like everyone was beyond shocked. So I'm willing to bet that they were beyond shocked. So suddenly they're having to sit back and wonder about how to negotiate a different set of relationships because everything, it's a bit like musical chairs. The music is stopping and everybody's grabbing for a chair, but they're somewhere different than they were just a few moments ago. Listen, the the statements on the pace and the scale of the growing relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel always came from Israel and the United States, not from Saudi Arabia. It's an excellent point. <laughs> right? So, I mean, you can always argue that um, unpopular uh, foreign policy decisions are always um, kept behind closed doors in Saudi Arabia. But even the statements made publicly never went as far as Israeli and U.S. statements did. So um, the onus here is on Israel and the United States and not on Saudi Arabia uh, for not really reading um, the real politic and, and politics in the region and inside Saudi Arabia itself. Let's spend just a few minutes on nuclear weapons. Iran is obviously close to by all reports, uh, the capability of, of building a, a weapon. Israel has had weapons for a long time. Saudi does not. And there's always been a question as to what at what point might Saudi Arabia seek uh, nuclear weapons. As we sit here in the spring of 2023, there's question marks behind all of that in the sense that we don't know what the Iranians will do next with their nuclear file. We don't know the extent to which part of the background 
of this discussion is a Saudi-Iran conversation about weapons of mass destruction in the Gulf. And we certainly don't know what the Saudis and the Israelis have talked about uh, in the same space. But what's your guess? Well, I still believe that the nuclear deal is the best way and the most promising way to deal with Iran's uh, nuclear threat. One that provides more guarantees that would satisfy and assure uh, uh, Gulf countries, when by here I mean Gulf countries on, on the Arabian Peninsula side and very specifically uh, Saudi Arabia. Because I do believe that if Iran uh, is... I don't want to say allowed, but if Iran manages to have a nuclear weapon, the reaction, the Saudi reaction would be to have one as well. No matter what you hear, no matter what public statements, no matter what the United States and Western Europe uh, are going to try, uh, this is what they will need to feel secure. Uh, and this is what they hinted to. And by the way, it's not just uh, the current crown prince that hinted to this, previous Saudi leaders also hinted to this. So I do believe that one, uh, reaching a nuclear agreement with Iran, with more safeguards, more strict safeguards uh, on Iran's capacity to enrich uranium is the best way to go. Two, part of that is having Gulf countries and particularly Saudi Arabia on board and engaged because that's how they're going to feel secure. And this is how they're going to feel that they don't need to go that path of uh, nuclear weapons. Can you imagine, in terms of, if not new thinking, perhaps fantastic thinking, a Saudi-Israeli deal on nuclear weapons? If Iran goes nuclear, you mean? Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, all, all options will be, will be open. In that case, and yes, I would, because um, if you follow uh, regional debates on uh, non-proliferation debates, meaning uh, on weapons of mass destruction and very particular nuclear, it is not Gulf countries that always bring up the Israel weapon. It's rather countries like Egypt, for example, to whom, you know, if you're going to talk about a zone free of weapons of mass destruction and nuclear weapons, then let's include Israel. Gulf countries always they talk about Iran. Yasmin Farouk, let's leave it there because I suspect we've gotten to the point where we're going to have more questions than answers, which means we can have in a few months another conversation to see how this evolves because we're clearly at an inflection point where some very new thinking in Beijing, in Tehran and Riyadh have changed the play in potentially, as you said before, a very positive way uh, for everyone, maybe even including the United States, which is going to have to think a little differently as a result of all this. So thank you very much for your, your thoughts today. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. 
Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation.